Welcome back to the 11th hour lecture series. A um, few bits of housekeeping before we get started. Please silence your cell phones if you haven't already. Tomorrow we are going to be having a faculty reading during the 11th hour, which I hope you'll join us for. Join um, us for. Uh, so we have Zach Savage again, wonderfully. He talked to us a bit on Tuesday, or on Monday, and is back to talk about poetry and questions of peace. Zach is the author of six books of poetry, including most recently, Daybed, which Publishers Weekly says, quote, crafts vibrant images of the natural world and stirring reinterpretations of the everyday. These poems are an effective balm against the rigid narratives and literalism of the real world. He is also the author of two books of prose, including Diving Makes the Water Deep, a memoir about cancer, teaching, and friendship. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he now teaches in the Undergraduate Creative Writing Program at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia and co-edits Rescue Press's Open Prose series. In today's lecture, Zach will lead us through a discussion of diverse poems to explore questions of peace, namely, is peace the absence of conflict or rather a state that can exist within conflict? How might, how might writing cultivate, reveal, and advance peaceable assembly? And what are the relationships between peace and protest, private experience, and politics? Please join me in welcoming Zach Savage. Thanks, thanks. Uh, thanks, good to see you all. It's week, uh, week four, day four of <laughs> the festival. Um, I hope it's going well. In my group, it feels like we've both been together for longer than just four days, and also like we could stay together for much longer than four days, at least to me. I hope you're, <laughs> um, I hope you're all getting a lot of writing done, um, and it's good to see you all again up here, uh, and to hear my bio again. I, I haven't, if you were here on Monday, you'll, see, you'll notice I've written the same number of books between oh. now and then. I thought I might get another one in. Um, you'll remember also if you're here Monday, this is an image. This image of the diver is one that I ended with. Uh, it lives in an Etruscan tomb. It's an image for the soul in its tomb to stare at forever. Uh, you might remember that I ended with this image, and so I want to start with this today to raise an initial question about poetry and peace. Uh, is this it? This kind of diver? An image to gaze at? A pleasant picture? something that lets the living imagine something beyond living, feel okay about it? I could also ask it this way. Are you more interested in poetry that is about peace, peace as its topic? And if so, should poetry that's about peace also be about the opposites of peace or the lack of peace? Or today as a writer, reader, artist, do you feel more interested in poetry that would demonstrate or inspire or create a feeling of peace? So not be about it as a topic, but rather be its cause. Uh, that's one thing that this image could be for, to create a feeling, to meditate on this and, and get a feeling from it. The eye dives toward the diver diving, caught forever in its serene sweep so that peace comes to mind. We could take a poll, poems about peace or poems that evoke peace. 
I could also ask the question this way with two pieces of visual art. This is from an artist some of you might know. Uh, it's a little hard to read. I'll, I'll read the text named Robert Mon Montgomery, who does text-based art. Let me show you two images, and I'll talk through each in more detail. First one uh, it says, to wake and be like the weather, to be no longer the servants of mad kings. And you see it's on fire. Second one, all palaces are temporary palaces. Both of these are political in their content, one step away from a political interpretation, mad kings, palaces. But the tone of each feels pretty different. The first one is more incendiary, literally. Its effect fumes up. And the other, at least to me, feels more atmospheric, calm, with a more meditative effect. It's a piece that you take in, even though there's a challenge in it. It's not a simple piece. Uh, which do you like better? All palaces are temporary palaces. To wake up and be like the weather, to be no longer the broken-hearted servants of mad kings. Which do you want on a t-shirt or a tattoo later today? We have an artist outside. <laughs> we'll come back. Uh, we'll talk about this question more. So I would say, if I had to align these with my opening question, to me, this, uh, this one I might align with its more evoking a feeling of peace or a meditative effect. And this one seems more as though it's about a complicated piece, a piece that also in, contains conflict or immolation, uh, the, the phrase itself destroying itself in order to be seen more, more uh, ardently. We'll talk about this more, but first I'd like to tell you about a dream that I'm always having. But before even that, I'd like to acknowledge that today's topic is manifold. It's in this title itself, Poetry and the Questions of Peace. Questions, not question. Peace should probably also be plural. Poetry and the questions of peace, or poetries and the questions of pieces, which for a poet is delightful because pieces then goes to pieces. Fragments, scraps, piecemeal. Paradise exists, as Pound wrote, apparently only in fragments. The glimpses can gather us up. The multiplicity of this topic reminds me of Kenneth Koch's poem, The Pleasures of Peace. Partway in, this is a long poem. Partway in, he says one of the most charming things in all of poetry. He writes, here are listed all the pleasures of peace that there could possibly be. I love that. He sets out to write a complete concordance all the possible pleasures of peace. It's, you know, he then starts to deliver. Settle, he's, you can settle in for it. He writes, and I've represented the line breaks with slashes for space. Among them are the pleasures of memory, the pleasures of agoraphobia, and the sudden release of the agoraphobic person from the identified marketplace, the pleasure of roving over you and rolling over the beach, of being in a complicated car, of sleeping, it goes on and on. You'll notice that Koch's catalog of the pleasures of peace highlights pleasure as a repeating word, not peace. It's almost like he's saying that pleasure itself is peaceable, like he's actually focusing not on the pleasures of peace, but on the peacefulness of pleasures. And he includes, as pleasures, 
things that could often be seen as anxieties, like the pleasures of agoraphobia. This raises some questions we'll return to, some questions of peace, of what it does to render a phrase like agoraphobia into this pleasurable runway. For instance, do you think peace is always or only pleasant? Is it pleasurable? Or can it be something else, something more severe and partial and afflicted and compacted? Would a deeper peace not shy from those elements or tidy them away, but find peace more like a hard, clear tone hovering through them? Koch gives up after a while, declaring that the pleasures of peace are infinite and cannot be counted. This is after he's gone on trying to really list them. One single piece of pink mint chewing gum contains more pleasures than the whole rude gallery of war. I'll read that again, and I'd like to sit with this for a minute. I think there's a lot to pull out of it. The pleasures of peace are infinite and cannot be counted. One single piece of pink mint chewing gum contains more pleasures than the whole rude gallery of war. First, to me, this reads as an allusion to a famous fragment from Sappho, which some of you may know, translated in many ways. Uh, it's a poem that can start off like this. Some say the most beautiful thing on this coal black earth is an army arrayed with horses and armor. Like Koch's poem, this poem then goes on to say some people find uh, the sublime beauty of the horrible instruments of war to be the most moving thing on earth. And it lists them. Some say that the most beautiful thing on this coal black earth, and depending on the translation, some, you know, her poems come to us moth, moth rippled in fragments. Some translators really elaborate the catalog of the machinery of war. Some say this is the most beautiful thing. It evokes a chilling sense of beauty, a sense of beauty as a sublime, not the beauty of Monet's water lilies, but the beauty of something that that uh, scorches, maybe more like that incendiary text from the beginning. Sappho's poem then turns, though, kind of like Koch's does, and I don't, no, don't have, I don't have it here, but the turn is usually represented something like, some say the most beautiful thing on this dark earth is war, 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 the stuff of war, but I say the most beautiful thing on this coal black earth are those you love and desire or those whose faces are beloved to you, or, the, or those you wish to be with. It, how, in, however it's translated, it comes to rest on people and desire, and people who would become uh, on the scale, and this is an act of, of, of that love poetry does, to put all the rude gallery of war on one side of the scale, and to put those, the, nothing but the truth of the heart's affections on the other side. Koch's lines echo that formulation, in a kind of in a clownish way, emphasizing that one piece of gum. And that's different. If Sappho says the most beautiful thing are those you desire, and Koch says, actually, the most beautiful thing may be this single pink piece of chewing gum. This fits on the scale next to the whole rude gallery of war. He's talking about pleasure, about pleasantness. So that's different than the, the Sappho. Sappho's lines seem to be about love, desire, its intensity, its rehabilitation or restoration, its affront even to the machinery of war. Cokes seem to be more about something that's trivial, one piece of gum. We could ask if that feels more passive or incidental to put the pleasure of one piece of chewing gum up against all of war. 
Does one piece of chewing gum stop a tank? You know, does one stop piece of chewing gum, does a dove land on it? Can that symbolize peace? Uh, compared to the Sappho, which might feel more active, to put the intensity of acute desire up against the machinery of war. So let me keep track of some, a growing list of questions that I'm starting to work around. Uh, first, I've asked if poems, if we prefer. You as a writer now, go out and write it. A poem about peace or a poem that brings peace? Is peace pleasant or pleasurable or is it something else, something more severe, something that might also need to responsibly evoke its opposites? We might also ask about the roles of things like desire or agitation, the intensity of love, of acute love, about acceptance, about the mundane or the trivial. Koch's lines about gum and the whole rude gallery of war raise a further question. His poem has been offering an epic encyclopedia of peace. He's told us he's going to list all the pleasures of peace that there could possibly be, but now he says that this single piece of pink mint chewing gum contains more pleasures than a bunch of other stuff. This shifts the mode from the epic, an epic mode where you're going to list all of the things. You're going to catalog the ships. You're going to catalog all the instances that could, could represent peace to one that's more emblematic, resting on the, that single piece of pink chewing gum. He's saying this one item, this wad of gum, contains multitudes. Uh, so my next question, if you had to choose for your sensibility, this is like a sensibility diagnostic, like the optometrist asking which one you prefer. Uh, for yourself, if you were writing about peace today, which feels more peaceable to you, closer to an ideal of peace as you would wish to feel it? To, to say a poem of peace should list each item in its own individuated particularity, granting each its own actuality, honoring each, calling it forth, giving it a place, which you would feel, as a poem started to do it, the impossibility of doing that for everything in the world. And you might think of Walt Whitman's catalogs. You may think of Inger Christensen's wonderful book, Alphabet, which uh, in, is a, a book that starts off, Apricot Trees Exist. That's the first page. Uh, and then the book, it's wonderful. If you don't know it, I'd love to just to read it with you all, all later tonight. Uh, and it's a, a book that tries to memorialize the things of a world as they pass. In trying to do so completely, Inger Christensen in Alphabet also needs to start memorialize the whole rude gallery of war, uh, nuclear, nuclear destruction particularly. And as she tries to preserve that, the poem also becomes an elegy. Anyway, so you, may, you could ask, which do you feel more closer to in your sensibility today? A poem that would try to name each thing in a, in a more epic or ongoing mode with a scale of proportion of one to one. I'm going to name all these pleasures, the pleasure of the marketplace, the pleasure of roving over you and rolling over the beach, or the more emblematic or iconic condensation or compression into the single piece of pink mint gum. Koch's language is fitting for this question. One piece of pink mint chewing gum. Pink mint is a lovely uh, misfire. What color is mint usually? Green. You know, just a nice, nice small way to make it more vivid. The phrase is also a mouthful. It, you, your mouth moves like gum to say it. Uh, it fits the phrase's compounded container, all the things held in that wad. So I want to come back to this gum 
But first, I want to tell you about a dream that I'm always having. In this dream, there's a bomb. And I'm shy to say it this way. It seems better to avoid it and maybe only use peaceful words, as though that could direct some force outward toward diffusing real bombs and the metaphorical bombs that can't be diffused. Uh, like these monks of a village I visited once in France who spend all day, we could do this too, beaming a force field of peace out from their cliffs into the entire world. Um, is it working? You can't get, I hope they, they're still doing it, so maybe it's holding a little. Uh, but in the dream I'm always having, there is a bomb. I'm sorry to say it this way. It's set at a playground. There are lots of people, general, peaceable, pleasant action. It's going to go off. That's inevitable. But there's a little time. Not enough to change anything, but a little time. What should I do in the dream? I could panic. I could warn others, knowing it won't change anything. Would they panic then, too? Could we prepare together somehow? I could try to prepare for some aftermath. I could try to attend to the present moment before the blast, whatever that would mean. I could try to make peace somehow in that time before the inevitable. I should say that in this dream, there's not a bad guy, there's not a villain, so there's no action movie fantasy in which I can rush him like a hero and save the day to be a good guy with a bomb to stop the bad guy with the bomb. But to try to make peace in that moment when a blast is imminent, it's a funny phrase, to make peace. We often use it after someone has died. She'd made her peace, he made peace in the end. Often it implies that a person is now at peace, as though a final state of peace, of having made peace, extends and becomes a stable location. The person made peace at the end, and they're now at peace. A stillness, even, which you rest in. But then I think, what about people who don't make peace at the end? But maybe they made peace once years ago. Maybe that was just for a moment. But now they're on to something else. I wonder, can such peace stay with you into other turmoil and flux? And for a poet, or a poem of peace, where's the responsibility? Toward making peace? Or toward having glimpsed its possibility and then venturing into other waters? In that dream, could I help others make peace somehow? Would that mean I was at peace too? Or could I decide I don't care about making my own peace, but I wish to build or offer something to others? It doesn't matter to me what that bomb represents, and I feel a little ashamed at how hypothetical it is, thought experiment, dream data. But perhaps it stands in for a situation that we're in. Call it climate change, mortality, whatever conflict. You choose. A bomb will go off. We're in the moment before that. Nothing we can do to stop it. You could throw your own body on it, I suppose, on principle, even if that won't change it. Let me return to the gum, though. And we'll look at a couple poems, then a little art, and then we'll see where this, these questions go. Let's imagine, so this dream is clear. We're at this playground, bomb inevitable. Let's imagine we could go into my dream. We're going to incept me. Go into my dream and add one single piece of pink mint chewing gum to the scene. And with that, we could change something. This is a good writerly problem. How can you convert the mode or genre or tone or outcome of a scene with a single item, even when you can't change that scene in a larger sense? 
Koch told us a single piece of pink mint chewing gum is worth more than the, the whole rude gallery. So let's try to enact that, transition from the epic encyclopedic to the emblematic. So to do this ritual, I could start sleeping with some gum under my pillow. I could chew it up first, squish down into it, fall asleep, have my dream, show up at that playground, and it's all like before. But we have a few moments. But what do I do with my gum? There's a narrative approach. Like, I could break the stick of gum in half and share it with someone. Maybe it's someone who's suffering for a reason that no heaven of gum could console, but it helps a little. It's what I can offer. We're together in those moments. We become characters who are real to one another. Or there's a more lyrical approach. I chew up the gum. I stick it under a picnic table where a child is playing, and I know that child will marvel for a moment at the glossy, sappy sheen of that little world tucked up globular against a knothole. It changes nothing, but in the mind, in one perceiving mind, the world has been made more lovely, attentive, interesting, and kind, like a little nodule of peace. Or there's a more fanciful approach. I chew up the gum, I spit it at the cartoonish black ball of a bomb with its twined fuse fizzling down. When the bomb goes off, it blows a giant bubble. A rabbit with a pair of huge scissors shows up and cuts up the bubble into enough pieces for everyone. We survive through the fantasy. Those are some narrative, lyrical, and surrealistic approaches. You could think of others, how to change a scene with a single item. And maybe this thinking of other options is itself the main option. To keep teasing out the story or the possibilities, elongating the moment through the imagination, showing what can exist if only in the imagination. But that's where we find ourselves in one another, talking it through, making something we can. So a poem can be, let's say, like that piece of gum inserted into the dream of the scene in which the implosions and embrasions are inevitable. All the strain that can prevent peace or that can prevent it from passing, from lasting longer than a blink, it's all already happened and will happen, but here's something, a poem. Let's look at some poems. Um, this first one, this is a book I adore, and I hope you'll buy it if you need one. Um, Adrenaline, this is, uh, uh, we'll look at a poem called We that's in the packet and I'll project it. The author's named Gaieth Almadun. Book was published in 2017, translated by Catherine Cobham. He's a Syrian-born Palestinian poet living in Sweden. This is a prose poem, and I'll read it in its entirety, and we'll, well, I'm curious what you'll find in it. We who are strewn about in fragments, whose flesh flies through the air like raindrops, offer our profound apologies to everyone in this civilized world, men, women, and children, because we have unintentionally appeared in their peaceful homes without asking permission. We apologize for stamping our severed body parts into their snow white memory because we have violated the image of the normal whole human being in their eyes, because we have had the impertinence to leap suddenly onto news bulletins and the pages of the internet and the press naked except for our blood and charred remains we apologize to all those who did not have the courage to look directly at our injuries for fear they would be too horrified, and to those unable to finish their evening meals after they had unexpectedly seen fresh images of us on television. 
We apologize for the suffering we caused to all who saw us like that, unembellished, with no attempt having been made to put us back together or reassemble our remains before we appeared on their screens. We also apologize to the Israeli soldiers who took the trouble to press the buttons in their aircraft and tanks to blow us to pieces, and we are sorry for how hideous we looked after they aimed their shells and bombs straight at our soft heads, and for the hours they are now going to spend in psychiatrist clinics trying to become human again, like they were before our transformation into repulsive body parts that pursue them whenever they try to sleep. We are the things you have seen on your screens and in the press, and if you made an effort to fit the pieces together like a jigsaw, you would get a clear picture of us, so clear that you would be unable to do a thing. Um, you probably see why I chose this, or among the many reasons I would have wanted to bring this in. I'd like to read the poems that try to figure that out. Uh, we are at time, and I know people have things, so I'll just I'll thank you and be glad to talk afterward and ongoingly as much as you like. Thanks for being here. <laughs>